Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hello, Dr. Newson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, So I understand that you actually started your career with a degree in biology. So I'm super interested to hear kind of a bit about your educational background. Uh, Yeah, okay. So I started out taking biology and doing all science, um, which I loved. I absolutely loved it. Um, so much. I love being a, an undergraduate so much that when they were talking to me about doing graduate work, I was thinking, wow, I have to specialize. This is so impossible. But then I was really lucky because I got a job as a journalist making science programs for the BBC in England. And uh, so I got to spend another eight years or so being an undergraduate, just like skating over a whole bunch of stuff. And then I gave up the job um, in order to have a child. I didn't think that the kind of work I was doing was compatible with motherhood. So I gave that up and then I wrote uh, books and articles and made a few videos and stuff about science and medicine. And then when I was in my mid forties and my daughter was 10, I thought I needed a career change. And that's when I did my PhD in, in psychology. And, uh, but I was still very biologically orientated because I, I wanted to look at what evolution could tell us about what humans are like. That's super interesting. Did you have a favorite BBC special that you did? Did you like have a one that you were just blown away by something you were learning? Um, I guess, I guess the most thoughtful one I worked on was about epilepsy Mm. because I learned through it a lot about disability and also minds and how um, some kind of mental change can, or some kind of physical change can have such a huge effect on the way people think and feel. And I just met so many interesting people. Neurologists are among the most interesting people in the whole world. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the human body and the human brain are just such complex organs that I, I always am constantly learning new things and I'll never cease to be amazed by the mysteries of the human body as I think we probably all will. <laughs> so yeah, you mentioned absolutely. have you've always kind of been interested in human evolution or was that something that like later in your career you kind of developed an interest for? When I was little I used to read children's bible stories type of thing because I, I mean and I kind of thought they were well like I I guess when you're a kid you don't really it's just a story right my dad Mm -hmm. I think it must have been my dad who told me oh well that's just a story and in fact humans are just like other animals we evolved and we changed and and then he kind of 
stuttered to a, a, a stop because, I mean, he was an engineer. He didn't really understand any of this stuff, but he was just blathering on like dads do. And, and I guess it started then, and, I, and I've read about it over the years. And um, it was, when I decided to do a PhD, it was because I was frustrated because it didn't seem like it was going anywhere. It seemed like it was going to, to kind of dark, confusing places. And I thought, well, I can sort this out. <laughs> so, so, and in the course of doing my PhD, I met Pete and discovered that he was feeling on similar lines. So that's how we became married and how we became co-authors. That's great. Um, I, as for me with an anthropology background, I think having, you know, like you said, you switched to psychology to study evolution. I feel like in my mind, that's a bit of a different approach, you know, that degree, and you're looking at things with a slightly different lens. What prompted you in particular to take that lens of looking at human evolution? Oh, so one of the things that I believe, and I, I don't know, maybe you'll come to believe it too, is that all these disciplines are a distraction. And that we're all, I mean, every single study of humans is biology. It's, I mean, humans are animals. And because we are humans, we figured out all kinds of different ways of studying one particular animal. But we're, we're just animals. And the reason I did psychology was because I, I was a mother with a 10 year old child who was in school and I, I needed to go somewhere close. I couldn't just go to the, a university that was the best university in the field. And so I just got to know some people at a university about 30 miles away from where I lived and, and they were fascinating and interesting and welcoming. And so I decided to do a PhD with them and they happened to be psychologists, but they were the most admirable kinds of academics in my opinion because it they didn't see themselves as as members of a field they saw themselves as members of a huge academia you know that were going to use any methods they could to look at interesting questions and so you know it's the people you work with and the books you read that's important <laughs> rather than the discipline i definitely can agree with that and as i progress i I agree that sometimes we're too niched down and like having our niche specialties definitely helps bring in, for example, like I study like human remains and osteological remains. So like, yes, that does add a different, a different layer to the story, but I think it's really like that collaboration and that like bringing in team members and having like a holistic team where there's people from all different fields so that the team and the product that's produced isn't necessarily an anthropology product. It's, you know, about human evolution if that's you know the product that you're producing um so do you feel like your degree in biology like that original degree has like really helped you in this field take like a more holistic approach because I know personally like having that really in-depth I mean biology students like I know at UCSB they go through it like it is a very rigorous program and you get such a more in-depth view of human biology has it helped like a holistic approach to your research yeah I think so it, it, it helps you understand things I mean I mean when they talk about the coronavirus you can understand a little bit of that they talk about immunology vaccines mm -hmm. they, when they, um, and, and you know genetics how much of its genes and how much of its you know nurture I mean all of that is really really useful it, 
how to grounding in what in the in the molecular biology of cells and things like that. It sounds bizarre. <laughs> I mean, life is totally different if you study biology. Definitely. And I have friends who are, I have a friend now who's he's got cancer, and and he talked about his cancer drug and. It's one. It's a very old drug, and I remembered it because I mean they're still using very old drugs for cancer. And I explained all about it. He said, "How do you know that?" And I thought, "Oh, well, I'm a biologist." It was such a great feeling. You're also like one day, way back when someone told it to me, and it just stuck in the crevices of my brain. <laughs> Every once in a while, these random thoughts will kind of percolate their way through and say, "Hello, yes, you learned that several years ago." Yeah. Um, yeah, that's well, true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually my first time having two guests on the podcast. So I'm sure my interviewing skills will get better as we go, but we're going to switch over and I'm going to introduce your husband, uh, Dr. Peter Richardson. And I want to know a little bit about your educational background as well, kind of your area of expertise and what you brought to what we'll talk about next, which is the book that you both co-authored. Well, my undergraduate degree was in entomology and my uh, PhD degree was in ecology. I studied lakes, uh, uh, plankton biology in lakes. And uh, so I came to uh, uh, an interest in humans. Uh, well, I mean, I, I always had an interest in humans, right? Because there are our species. But uh, uh, when I was uh, hired here at Davis as a faculty member, I was hired into an interdisciplinary department. So about half my colleagues uh, were and, and still are uh, social scientists. Uh, and uh, so I uh, uh, was drafted to teach, help teach a course in principles of human ecology. And uh, I had a pretty good training in evolutionary biology and as part of my graduate and undergraduate work. Uh, and so uh, uh, the other instructor and I decided to make uh, adaptation one of the key uh, themes in our in our course. And so uh, I knew how uh, evolutionary biologists thought about uh, organic adaptations as coming about. So I figured that, uh, uh, well, I'd done a little bit of reading uh, uh, in anthropology for a postdoctoral project I had uh, and uh, uh, I knew that there were these people that called themselves cultural ecologists. Uh, uh, it was a kind of a uh, important subdiscipline in anthropology in, in the, well, going back to the uh, 30s. And uh, uh, so I went off to the library to look up what these people had, had done. And I was just looking for material for a, for a lecture on, on cultural evolution, basically. How do cultural adaptations come about? And what I discovered was that uh, uh, the uh, theory that uh, these cultural ecologists deployed and later came to find out there were lots of other, other sub-disciplines and other social sciences that uh, had similar kind of talk, but there was no real theory there. There was no, nothing that, that resembled the, the evolutionary biology and population genetics and, and subjects like that that I, I knew uh, a fair amount about from from biology. So at the same time, I was teaching a, a different course with uh, Robert Boyd, my longtime co-author, and he and I fell to talking about this, and we finally convinced ourselves in the early 70s that uh, 
this, uh, uh, there was a research project here. There was, uh, uh, people hadn't thought harder and done enough work in, in the theory of cultural evolution. So uh, we set off to, uh, uh, to lay some foundations and uh, there was a few, a few other people involved in the, in, in the, that subject matter in those days, uh, particularly Cavalli sorts of uh, uh, Luigi Cavalli sorts and Mark Feldman at Stanford. Uh, uh, and they took a, a highly population genetical point of view and, and Rob and I kind of blended population, the population genetical view with, uh, uh, with uh, important themes in, in uh, human uh, behavior, like our a tendency to cooperate in, in large scale uh, social systems. Well, that was uh, how I transitioned from being a, a bug guy to being a human guy. And how long have uh, you been at UC Davis? Oh, well, I came here actually as an undergraduate student in 1962, oh. so. Uh, and never uh, left. <laughs> well, I left from time to time, but I ah. always, I never, uh, unlike most academics, I didn't uh, switch uh, universities to get my PhD degree, and I didn't switch to when I became a faculty member. Succession of accidents, basically. But it's probably fun because you've seen UC Davis, I'm sure, evolve in its own right and students throughout you know, your time there. I think it's really cool. I had one of my first guests um, had been, did their undergrad and a PhD and then taught at UCSB and it's really cool you really get to see all the different levels of what's going on in the school and what it's like to be a teacher and I imagine that like going from being a student like if I were to ever come back and teach at UCSB I would I'd feel like I could relate to the student population a lot I'd be like oh I remember being in your shoes as an undergraduate. <laughs> yeah there's that aspect to it I made a lot of friends over the years and so it's been a comfortable place to, to be an academic. That's great. Well, what I am so, so excited to talk to you both about, because you have just a new book out just this month entitled A Story of Us, A New Look at Human Evolution, which you guys co-authored. So just so everyone will know, um, you can look it up and it's available, but I will also have it linked in the episode notes so everyone can just easily click there and check out the book. But um, first of all, congratulations. Any type of publication is extremely impressive, but, you know, especially a large undertaking like a book, you know, in this time, very impressive to be putting that out. So I'd love to know when uh, did the two of you first come up with the idea for this book? It was the first lunch we ever had together. Um, we were at a scientific conference and I was, he asked, I, I, I was, because I did my PhD late, I was giving my very first uh, talk for my research I did as a PhD student. And um, I was so scared. Anyway, he asked me a question, which was a good question. He was in the audience and after my talk. And, uh, and he asked me a question, it was a good question. And somehow I managed to answer it. And then afterwards he said he liked my talk and I, I, I practically fell at his feet because, well, <laughs> he's, he was sort of well known. And then I'd read his his book and some of his papers and and anyway, so then he asked me to have lunch and over lunch I said, Look, it's just really terrible because your book is amazing, but I didn't get this was the book he wrote in nineteen eighty five. 
but I didn't get to read it until I was at, doing my PhD and I was at a university library. And then there's this, the book, the bookshops are full of, the shelves are absolutely full of books that don't talk about the working cultural evolution. They talk about, you know, they talk about evolution, but they don't, they, they're missing this. And he goes, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Welcome to my world. And uh, so um, we, we, we talked about it then, but um, that was many years. Well, it was about a year before we both realized we were getting divorced. <laughs> and, then, and then we, and then we were, we've been exchanging emails and stuff. And then, uh, what, I mean, I, it wasn't actually in our marriage vows, but I think we, we there was an, uh, there was a, a tacit agreement that we'd write this book, right, darling? Yep. <laughs> I put Leslie on the Richardson Family Fellowship, as I jokingly <laughs> refer to it. And her her task was to write this book. Yeah, with his help, of course. When you're writing, did your original intention stay the same, or did it kind of evolve throughout your writing of it? Did you maybe you kind of come up with new intentions or new goals as you were going through the writing process? And both of you are free to answer these questions. You can go from one to the other. Well, it certainly evolved from my perspective because. I think when you're when you're excited about some ideas, your first your first way of talking about it is to say, "This is why everything else is wrong." Okay, now I'm going to tell you what the truth is. But of course, that's not the way to do it because people really. I mean, this is my eventual feeling: is people really want to know about themselves. People want to see how things apply to their life and to them. They don't want to be told other people are wrong. They want to. They want something useful. And so eventually it came about that it seemed to be that it should be a story of us, how, you know, a replacement for that story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden or whatever, a, a story which teaches people about what people are like based on where we came from. And, and, and gives you something exciting in, in your history that goes back years. Anyway, your turn. Your turn, darling. What do you think? I have all the wrong instincts to write a book with uh, broad uh, uh, popular appeal. I think too much like a scientist. I uh, tell long convoluted stories that are full of facts. And, and uh, uh, as one of my friends described uh, uh, my 1985 book, he said, I used that as a sleep aid for years. Uh, <laughs> he'd read at it when he couldn't go to sleep. Uh, so uh, teaming up with Leslie, who's done popular science writing, was a uh, was a really important thing. And and the uh, and in particular, uh, she came up with this idea to have this uh, three layered. Uh, 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 book. We'll find out how well it, it sells. Maybe it, it'll be a flop, but it's, as far as we know, it's pretty innovative. So uh, stylistically, it, it's got these, uh, as you know, it's got these, uh, what I call science fiction stories. Uh, uh, it, it, each chapter uh, uh, leads off kind of with those stories. And then we recount the uh, evidence that uh, we think uh, 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 buttresses that uh, that particular story. Why why we wrote the uh, that account the way we did. There's lots of of interesting uh, things we know about the human past, uh, 
And so uh, the the uh, story is certainly constrained by those uh, by those uh, facts, by the stones and the bones. To uh, thinking of the uh, deeper past, and uh, uh, so and then the the third uh, section is the uh, is the notes, which are uh, which include uh, uh, not just the the references in in the in the usual sense of a bibliography, but uh, uh, there are a series of uh, sort of mini essays about uh, topics there that uh, are probably not of much interest to the average reader, of, uh, at least the reader we readers we hope to attract. Uh, uh, but they're uh, they hash out uh, uh, issues that uh, are of interest to our scientific uh, colleagues and competitors, and and so they're uh, they're meant for the uh, I wrote most of the of the notes, and therefore my uh, our scientific colleagues, not not for the general reader of the book. Although if people are interested, they can they can certainly uh, read them. So we'll see how well this three layered uh, uh, structure for um, a scientific book uh, uh, appeals to, we'll find out who it appeals to, if, if anybody. Well, I think let's, let's be a bit more positive. We know it's going to appeal to people. Um, I mean, I, you, the two of you were kind enough to give me a rough draft of the book a couple of weeks ago to look over and I am truly enjoying it. I think it does a wonderful job of hitting that multi-level audience, just like you were talking about where, you know, it has the stories but it also, you can go to the references and you can break down, you know, that work if you want to further. But so the book really frames human evolution and early humans in this really unique way that hasn't been done before. So you position your story so that the reader can imagine themselves as an early human. And then there's a narrated story that frames each chapter of the book. And the stories are actually written in the second person perspective at each level of the jump in hominin evolution. So from chimpanzee to Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, there's a story that starts at birth and shows how an early human would have grown up and learned culture from its family. Then they follow these stories by breaking okay, can down- Can I just and say something quickly, quickly, quickly? I just, have, I just have to break in, sorry. Not from chimpanzee, from, the, from a, an ape. Oh, um, yes. From an ape. Yes, the, from the from the common the common ancestor. The common ancestor. Yes. Yeah. No, that's and a wonderful so correction. It is. The, it is. Right. It is the case that so much of what we imagine about that last common ancestor is based on what we see in the chimpanzee, because the chimpanzees still live in the same sort of environment as mm -hmm. the last common ancestor. So, I mean. It's there are key differences though a lot of similarities yeah yeah we just don't know what they are yeah <laughs> well, i know we know that there are differences not yet. between chimpanzees and us but we, we we don't know about that last common ancestor yeah well and then we, there are bonobos uh, that are mm. equally closely related to us and and their social behavior is rather distinctive from from the common chimpanzee so uh, uh there's a lot of wiggle room in what the last common ancestor might have been like uh, mm -hmm. uh, you can't they, they uh, we can't rely on the chimpanzee or the bonobo being being exact models or, or even very good models the last common ancestor might have been pretty weird by comparison with the other apes definitely but one thing I think one thing I think that we can say with pre pretty much confidence 
is that seven million years ago, our ancestors would have had a typically ape kind of way of raising their children, which would have meant that mothers had to work like hell <laughs> because ape babies are very, very hard to, to raise. It, it may be three, it may be four, it may be five years after they're born, they're still dependent. Um, even after they can forage for themselves, they still need to hang around their mother because there's still a lot to learn. There's still, she can still protect them socially, if not actually from the physical dangers around. Um, it, it's, it's an extraordinary, it, it's an extraordinary job <laughs> being an ape mother. And uh, humans ended up doing it and being parents in a totally different way. And, and that's one of the things that seems to be important to us anyway. Definitely. Um, I just want to quickly, I'm just going to go back to, because I want to, I want to encourage our listeners to read it because I think that they need to. So um, they're really framing each chapter by the story that starts at birth and then shows how these early human ancestors would have grown up and learned culture from the family. And then as you were saying, you follow those stories by breaking down and analyzing the research and data from archeological sites and find, which contextualize the story wonderfully without being too in your face, like only an academic can get through it. But I think one of the things that I found super interesting was how each, um, each step of human evolution was learning culture. You really focused on that and how it was being passed from the mother or if they were learning from the other um, apes or humans that they were seeing. I thought that was super, super fascinating. Um, were there things that you kind of came across in the research that were new to you about human evolution, new uh, facets of the way that they were uh, adapting and learning culture? Um, well, I, I, I guess the Ice Age humans are the ones I learned a lot about. It was, Pete suggested that I, I, I read this one paper and having read that paper, it just made, gave me so much imagination because there was an extraordinary leap in, in cultural complexity from time 100,000 years ago when almost all our ancestors were living in Africa and then 50, 30,000 years ago when humans had, you know, humans had left Africa mm -hmm. and were living all over Eurasia and had also made it to Australia. Yeah. And, and developing and develop advanced technologies and art right, and, and, and art, art form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. And, um, and so reading about that and, and thinking about it and thinking about some of the things that psychologists were talking about, how cooperation is developed, can be nurtured between people getting and, and, and getting this idea of, of a social tool, like a ritual where everybody does something together. It could be having a cup of tea together. It could be, you know, singing a song together. There could be so many things. And that it gives us a feeling of, of kinship. So it's a social tool. Money is a social tool because it allows us to trade. And, and that, that the invention of these social tools was really important um, for, our, for our evolution. So I suppose that that was, that, that was, 
electoral community. I don't know if that makes sense. Sorry. No, that definitely makes sense. You mentioned that, you know, humans really did family life differently than other ape species. And a lot of that is the males. So in, I believe the first two stories with the ape ancestor and Australopithecus, um, you know, in the story, they bring up, you know, oh, the males visited or the males were at a distance and they would come to mate versus when we get into the humans, you know, the men are part of raising the child. They're part of hunting for the family. Um, could you kind of further explain some of that uh, to our listeners who may not be as familiar with it? For example, you know, I've read it, but I want to give them like that sneak peek into it. Okay. Um, well, it's just that it starts with the size of the brain. Um, it's, with humans, um, people and their babies started to have much bigger brains. Um, with the early humans. In, in the early stages, they were maybe only 10, 20, 30% bigger, but they were bigger. And it's very, very, very hard to raise a large-brained infant. They're very hungry they, because that brain requires so much energy to work. It's, it's a very, very busy organ. And so the question is, how could that happen? How, how when, when, Ape mothers are working as hard as they can to raise these large-brained infants. Who? How can then that? How can that infant then? How can they then raise an even larger-brained infant? And the the only answer to that question has to be that they had help from men, because the men are the only ones who aren't doing anything. <laughs> so instead of you know fighting and doing one of the things that males do in other species, men were working. And they were helping with the family, so good on them. Yeah, that's yeah. a pretty rare. That's a pretty rare thing in in mammals. Most most mammalian males are completely useless as far as uh, as far as raising kids is concerned. They fight amongst themselves over over access to the women, and that's about all they do. Uh, aside from look good and and make a nuisance of themselves, so. Uh, or, or they, they, they cannot, they also sometimes help with maintaining territory. Yeah, well, yeah, they do uh, some, when they're social at all. Yes, they do some things. So my next question is, I really loved, and I mentioned it before, how it's clear, the book's clearly targeted for a multi-level audience, which is something I try to do on the podcast. And as I've, you know, now been doing it for about eight months, I've started giving more background and context and explaining certain key terms that in the beginning I was just assuming everyone knew. So why in the, in, you know, creating this book, was it so important for you to target that multi-level audience and have it be available to people outside of academia? I'll answer this first. Okay. Um, because people talk about evolution all the time. I mean, they're all the time talking about, you know, some idea of, oh, this is human nature. This is the way humans evolved. We're animals, really. And, and, and so if everybody's talking about it, I'd really like them to talk about it from a position with, of a bit more knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it isn't just enough that, we, that scientists interested in evolution talk among themselves because people care about it. That's my answer. What's your answer, darling? Well, it... Uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, books like this, trade books, are also how uh, scientists in different disciplines talk to one another. Uh, so uh, 
uh, uh, people like uh, Stephen Jay Gould and uh, uh, have had an outsized impact on on people's uh, uh, ordinary people's thinking, but also social scientists, for example, uh, very frequently, uh, uh, particularly in a, a generation earlier when when Steve was still active, uh, they got all of their knowledge of, of evolution from uh, Stephen Jay Gould, or most of it, and 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 uh, Gould, for all of his brilliance, was uh, was pretty eccentric. I mean, it, he didn't represent mainstream uh, mainstream evolutionary biology at all. Uh, so, uh, and, and oh, Stephen Pinker is another example. There are many uh, who had an outsized influence because they've written books that are accessible to people who aren't uh, aren't evolutionists uh, other uh, social scientists other biologists uh, so uh, in a way a book like <clears throat> a book like this uh, well uh, put it differently uh, we're all lay people with respect to uh, lots of disciplines right no matter how mm -hmm. well steeped we are in anthropology or evolutionary biology or whatever we're uh, I mean I'm a in terms of say uh, Leslie knows a lot more uh, cell biology and and biochemistry than I do, uh, even though I took courses uh, uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So uh, my, uh, it wasn't my specialty. So my knowledge was partial and uh, way out of date. So uh, to, if I want to gain some uh, information about those topics, I have to go back to, uh, to square one. And so I think that uh, trade books have a, as I say, an outsized influence on uh, on the science itself. Not it, it's not just a matter of communicating with lay people, but uh, with your um, with your uh, scientific colleagues. Definitely, I could also see like I know my parents read to me a ton as a kid. I could see this being something that you know a parent reads to their child at night, even if it's just the story part. You know, the stories just to get them thinking and interested about you know their common ancestors. And I think that a better understanding of evolution as a whole can really help bring, like you were saying, Leslie, um, a point of some some actual knowledge into the discussion of race because you know really the race is constructed idea there is one race the human race we all originated out of africa and i think seeing that and reading that in a really digestible and understandable way that connects you know also there are few books that connect all of the steps of human evolution you know there's so much and there's so many changes like we we're saying from that first common ape ancestor all the way to homo sapiens sapiens there's so much so much adaptation that happened and i think that it really can help you understand why different populations look or act or have different adaptations it's really just because of environmental changes um or social pressures you know stuff like that i think it's a really powerful tool to be able to read this book and then come out of it with some actual knowledge that you can apply to, to the to your daily life well one of the things that i i think maybe the most controversial thing about our book is that we say that there's this huge important transformation happening now um and that's because we are no longer mostly living within families. It, it was it, uh, remarkably recently, like, you know, three, four 
hundred years ago, mostly people living in were living in little small villages and mostly hanging out with their family or family friends. And they were really close-minded. They couldn't read, they couldn't write. And there's just been this explosion of connectedness. I mean, it's part of what humans are, is to be connected to other humans. But what, what we're having now is we're tackling vast amounts of information coming to us from many, many sources. It's because of our ability now to empathize with people in Yemen, people in, in Lebanon, that, that, and people in, in, in Africa, and, and, and people on the streets of American cities who are having, being harassed by police. It's because of that ability to have empathy yeah. <laughs> so widely. I mean, that it's changing culture. I mean, I, I, 300, 400 years ago, I don't suppose our ancestors cared anything what was happening in these other other parts of the world that they perhaps not even heard of. Mm -hmm. But we're now so connected. And it, that in itself is having a huge effect. And one effect is that people aren't having that many children. I mean, you know, by the end of this century, the population of humans on the earth is probably going to start to decline. And we need to kind of get our heads around that idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But it's I thing. saw an article, I saw an article the, the other day that was emphasizing that during COVID, like there have been decreases in births and how dangerous that is. And when I saw the title, I thought, wait, that's a good thing. <laughs> There, we shouldn't be having five kids each. Our earth is deteriorating. But they were, you know, they were framing it in the context of like Medicare and, you know, paying taxes and stuff. But my thought was from a human perspective, like it's actually probably a better thing to move back into smaller like bands of people. But that's my opinion. I also just am very passionate about environmental issues and it's actually something I wanted to bring up because Leslie, you asked me when we were emailing, you know, you said what, what, what I think are good techniques for sharing anthropological knowledge and ideas with the wider public. And, you know, I don't have all the answers. I think my podcast is kind of my first, like dipping my toes into that. And I'm really, really happy because I've been able to give some like guest lectures to my old middle school and really see like that younger students I'm talking below like college level are very extremely fascinated by these subjects and some people in this world still don't even know what anthropology is I mean I've met people that are in their 20s and they go oh what what's an what's anthropology well, I've never heard of that major so I think what really needs to be changed is implementing the studies of like environmental science anthropology and more global history at younger ages. I think I think so much about how much of my studies have overlooked South America, Africa, the Middle East, and how I would love to learn more about how cultures adapted there and how the people, you know, developed their livelihoods there. But it is so commonly overlooked. Lots of times in America, we focus on America. We focus on, North, you know, the continent of North America. We focus on Europe, sometimes like Asia. But I think really we need to start from a younger, younger grades, you know, 
let's start when they get in school teaching about environmental studies about the human race you know human origins I don't think we should be trying to start those things like at the end of high school or in the beginning of college I mean I only learned about the various like hominin species I think maybe my sophomore junior year of high school I wish that was something that I would have been learning about from the beginning because then I think too when you do take like biology chemistry even geography, it makes more sense because you have like that prior context. So I think that's how I feel, you know, in regards to how we can begin the process of sharing anthropological knowledge, you know, with with a wider public. But I'm definitely really curious to hear what the two of you think about that as well. I totally, totally agree with you. I think a really important thing that we need to keep in mind when teaching our kids anything is that you shouldn't have you shouldn't teach them anything they have to unlearn later. And one of the things that I find bad about this concentration on what's around them, you know, American kids learn about America, English kids learn about England and so on and so on, is that they have to unlearn the fact that they're just a small part of a very Mm -hmm. big world, which is part of a very big universe. I think it would be good to help kids from an early age have a feeling of humility and awe about the hugeness about it. What about you, Johnny? Well, I, I think maybe you ought to, uh, uh, thinking about the future, you ought to uh, extract those uh, uh, stories from our book and uh, make them into a illustrated kids book uh, uh, that uh, tries to explain human evolution just strictly through those uh, stories without, uh, uh, so as uh, Gabby said, uh, she can imagine uh, people uh, reading those stories out of our book, uh, like a chapter uh, chapter book for their 10, 12 year olds. So uh, uh, maybe we ought to, or you ought to, it's not my, not my genre. You're the one who writes for the, for the, uh, popular audience and for kids. Uh, uh, So maybe we ought to, or you ought to uh, uh, get ambitious in that direction. I think we might've just found your next project. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't wanna give, I don't wanna give listeners the the idea that this is a kid's book though. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) No, well, it's, no. I read some of my best books, some of my, I, when I was in high school, I read so much. I just, I, I, was, mm-hmm. I just devoured books, and I, I think that we underestimate how much teenagers even are really, really interested in what's going mm-hmm. on around them. Books yeah. are such such I'm, a powerful way to learn. Sorry, go ahead, Peter. Well, I, I learned a lot and was influenced a lot by uh, science books uh, when I was in high school, and and even younger. I mean, the the uh, the earliest anthropological thought that uh, ever entered my head, I guess. I I must have been 10 or 11. I read some, uh, it's completely lost to me now, uh, what it was some series of of books or or a bunch of chapters in a single book, I don't even remember, but it was about, uh, uh, it was about North American Indians and their resistance to, uh, uh, to, uh, to European uh, domination and, and it made heroes out of all these. Uh, guys and sometimes gals and uh, that uh, uh, that stuck with me to this day 
So, so do you think that, that a story of us would be interesting and useful to first year anthropology students as a way of, in, I don't know, introducing the whole thing to them? I don't know. Definitely. I, I could see this. I could see it as like an uh, one of the books that they recommend for like intro to biological anthropology or I suppose archaeology as well but I know my bioanth class at UCSB was very based on subjects relating that to that especially because you talk a lot about adaptations and how each adaptation like came about. I think for an intro to biological anthropology class especially because those intro classes are so large it's hard to really engage with material I think having like reference books that aren't like textbooks for classes like that is are great. I mean, for my peoples of the Ice Age class, we had a book of the Cave Painters by Gregory Curtis. And it's really helped me further engage with these thematic ideas like in a different way. It focused specifically on uh, the Upper Paleolithic cave art like Lascaux, Altamira. But it was really interesting to connect all of the, you know, archaeological themes that we'd been learning in class to that book. I really had this deeper appreciation for it that I don't think I would have had if I would have just read it independently of the class. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I will have um, Leslie and Peter's information in the episode notes so you can check out their other research. You know, they're both very accomplished in their fields. This is by no means, you know, their only publication, but also check out A Story of Us. Again, we'll have that linked in the description. Thank you both for talking with me today.